Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Brand are experts in agriculture, covering your equipment, parts, and service needs to help you succeed in your field. From behind the stumps to behind the mic, nothing gets past Smithy. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Puts it into perspective just how old that song is now. You don't think it was that long ago, but 30 years of hurt, uh, it's closer to 60 years of hurt now since England last won the Football World Cup. Yes, and uh, of course, it didn't go well for them against the French on the weekend. Looking at the FIFA World Cup quarterfinals, and uh, there was more upsets, yet more upsets, more underdogs through to the final. What did you make of it? Who did you have, and uh, what's your your take on the way that these games played out? We'll take your calls on 0800 150 811, 0800 uh, because you could win yourself a Charmate Colt 48 Smoker and Barbecue thanks to Aber Living just by being our caller of the month here on ECNZ. But really, uh, let's start with this one. It was the first quarterfinal of the weekend. It's 4 o'clock on Saturday morning, and the Croatians took on Brazil. Here goes Brazil down the right sideline. Rafinha got Borna Sosa to his inside, threads it in, cuts the cross back, and just cleared away by Livakovic. There was a slight touch there that almost took it away from goal, but Livakovic had to react quickly. Here's Vinicius on the right side, cuts it back in towards Neymar, turns, shoots a block. The clearance is not effective, and the follow up shot from Vinicius is straight to Livakovic, who came out and smothered, but now the flag goes up for offside, attempting to thread it through towards Neymar. Ricochets towards Richarlison, who plays it. Neymar now, Neymar with a shot, saved at the near post by Livakovic, rebounds out, Rodrigo, oh was that a hand from Gvardiol, play goes on, Brazil, Pakatar with the shot, and parried away by Livakovic, over the byline for a corner, Rodrigo spins through the traffic and takes over, cuts inside from the left wing, into the middle lanes, here's Neymar, on the end of the Richarlison pass, Neymar, it's saved, Livakovic again, waits, lays it off, strike comes in, and it's saved by Livakovic, who did actually bobble it for a moment, that is full time from the Education City Stadium after 90 minutes and there are no goals. Croatia nil, Brazil nil, which means Archie Thompson we are off to extra time. The sideline back in field, back to the sideline now for Rodrigo who curls it in towards the back post, turning up the pace. Pakatar was making the back post run but the cross from Rodrigo is a bit too skinny and turns the play over to Croatia's favour. Modric a through pass to Pedisic, no one in support. Oh he's got past all of them, he keeps on going, lays it off, needs a shot, taken and it's 
it's blazed over the bar. A golden chance for Croatia. And Marcelo Brozovic's finish was just not up to standards. And now Neymar, who is in the central lanes. 1-2 with Rodrigo. Neymar continues on. Pakita back to Neymar. Inside the box. Neymar around the keeper. Brazil in extra time. It's that star man, Neymar. Thumps his chest, runs to the crowd. Brazil 1, Croatia 0. Into midfield and striding out forwards is Croatia. Over towards Orsic on the left side of the box. Cuts across back. First time shot is taken. And Croatia do find the equaliser. It's big Bruno. Bruno Pekovic, top of the box. Left-footed strike past the goalkeeper. And near the end of the second half of extra time, Croatia have drawn this game level. It's Croatia 1, Brazil 1. So, first up, Nikola Vlasic of Croatia, who are taking the first spot kick. It'll be the end of either Brazil or Croatia. Vlasic steps up and blasts it down the middle. Equal youngest player in the squad. Livakovic in goals for Croatia. Rodrigo, the right foot. He comes up and it's saved by Dominic Livakovic. If he misses this, it's Croatia in. The defender, Marquinhos. He'll take a right-footed shot. Marquinhos, he's hit the post! He's hit the post! And it's out! Brazil have been eliminated! Brazil are gone! It is over! And Croatia live on! Croatia, the masters of the penalty shootouts, have knocked over the Giants. The dream of a sixth star above the crest is over. And Croatia, the Giant killers, they have done it again. Croatia progress into the semi-finals. There you go. The Croatians through on penalties against Brazil, who have now not won the World Cup in 20 years. 2002 was the last time. It's going to be 24 years by the time the next World Cup runs uh, rolls around. So, yeah, a big, big miss for the Brazilians, a team that I thought had everything going into this tournament. But Croatia just managed the team, managed the game, managed the midfield and uh, got through on penalties and you know I said at the beginning of, this, of the tournament they were 11th favourites, I said how can a team that was in the final last time be the 11th favourites this time they're a dark horse for me and here we are now they're in a semi-final Logan Yeah that is totally wild but I, I think, you know how sometimes there's the, a commentator's curse right there was this one, I was following the match on uh, on Twitter and then Chief from Barstool Sports tweeted about the Neymar goal being him deciding it was over, it's done, extra time. <laughs> Spoke too soon, mate. So uh, for anyone, um, you know, if your sweepstake died, your office sweepstake died with that Brazil loss, well, uh, I mean, perhaps you might want to look to for someone to blame. Just saying. Just, Just throw, saying. Throw it out there. Throw it out there. No more dancing anymore uh, from uh, the Brazilians. Uh, that meant we we, uh, we had uh, the Netherlands versus Argentina coming up, and uh, we will get to that shortly. But Michael's called through. G'day, Michael. How are you? Hey, Ricardo. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. Good. Who was? Good. Did you good. have a team in the in the World Cup, or what, what was your take on the quarterfinals? I, I thought they were really. I'm not a huge football fan, but I guess uh, great to see Morocco come come through, and and I think they could go quite <clears throat> quite a bit further. Um, but my question for you is, um, like England, um, like only getting one of two penalties, but actually getting two penalties in a game, which were really your only chances to um, to, to score a, a goal or two, is that? Unusual, or do you still think France played better than England? 
I think France played better to their strengths. Um, yeah, I mean, England, they had a couple of other chances. Harry Maguire put a header wide. Uh, Kane got actually found probably about the, on the penalty, roughly around the penalty spot with a cutback uh, in the, at the end, towards the end of the first half and skied one over the bar, much like he would with the penalty later on. Um, so they did have a couple of other chances, but I think the French uh, probably kept their cool better. And I also think that Didier Deschamps, uh, the French manager showed his experience of having been there that much longer and having won things before. Uh, Gareth Southgate, I mean, for a team that was dominating, he could have put the foot on the throat, but instead he took off, you know, um, Saka, who was probably their best player, to bring Sterling on, who's been average all season um, and had been away from the camp because he he'd had to go home to see his family because they had a home invasion. Um, and then Marcus Rashford, who was the top scorer for England at the tournament, didn't he didn't bring him on until with two minutes left? So I think yeah, a lot of it's yeah. down to the management of the team. To be fair, I, I I wouldn't. I think there's probably a lot of England fans that are quite happy to see the back of Gareth Southgate now because I think he is just too, uh, what's the right word? Too conservative uh, when they had opportunities to, yeah. to to really attack and and to really be uh, you know to put uh, France to the sword. They didn't do it. So does Morocco get to the final? Does Morocco? I I, I mate, I'm. I thought that they had played their final against Spain and I'd written them off. Well, not written them off, but I thought Portugal should have too much. Portugal should beat them and that didn't happen. Right. Um, so now it kind of feels like I can't say the same thing twice. Mate, to be honest, I don't know. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I said I thought the difference between France and England would be Mbappe. He didn't get on the score sheet, but he certainly um, made England defend more over to their right-hand side than they normally would have, and maybe yeah. that opened up opportunities elsewhere. I still think Mbappe is a generational talent, and he's probably going to be the difference. Just one other question for you. I read something a while ago, and they said that, I mean, for me, um, this whole thing was really exciting when right down to, to get into the last um, 16 that you never knew who was going to be there. That changing the format, for the next World Cup, as I understand it, and mm. it's not going to be the same. Do you think that'll take something away from it? Because that that was all quite exciting when you know someone beats someone else and someone goes through. I, that sort of made made it really interesting in my book. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a fan of making it. I mean, even though the, the change will guarantee New Zealand gets to the World Cup, basically, or guarantees one team yeah. out of Oceania will automatically qualify. So if New Zealand can dom- continue to dominate Oceania, then that means that. New Zealand should be at every World Cup from now on, right? Um, even though right. That, that's what this means, I'm not a fan of changing the format because I know they're still talking about exactly how it's going to work, but they're going from 32 teams to 48. That's 16 more teams. And you've seen how yeah. average some of the teams in the group stages were. So do you want more average teams at what's supposed to be the pinnacle event? I don't think so. And they're also talking about then uh, to make it work, having, I think, 16 groups of three uh, so everybody plays two games and the bottom team from each of those groups goes out and then it's straight knockout from there. I don't know that that works either. I think no, they're, they're I, trying I to jangle it. it. Yeah, I reckon the way they've got it at the moment where only two of the four go through, but that that's that could all get really mixed up by by a surprise result, do you know what I mean, which we, which we saw in this tournament, which is, you know, it's good to see the, the, the Japans and the Moroccans of the world get through, you know? Yeah, totally. 100%. 100%. Uh, you know, I mean... Because, um, you know, if that was it for that format, Morocco might not have got... I can't remember the iterations of it, but Morocco might not have gone through. But, hey, um, wouldn't it be a fairy tale if they did win it? And if they get to the final, they've probably got every chance of doing that. But um, time will tell. 
Time will tell, mate. Yeah, well, I mean, there's um, the Argentinians and the Croatians on in, in the other semi-final, which is obviously going to uh, make life interesting because there's a certain bloke called Messi and another bloke called Modric who might have something to say about it, Michael. But thanks for your call, mate. I, you... I would pick Croatia for that one, mate. Yep, they just got the bottle aid. Mentally, they've just got it. Yeah, they have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're sort of another, like, sort of, like, you wouldn't call them a dark horse team, but they're not. They were never one of the top four or five favourites. Do you know what I mean? But, yeah. Interesting times. Interesting times indeed. Um, thanks very much for your call, Michael. Uh, I, I reckon Michael's put himself in the running so far this month that I've heard uh, for that Charmate Colt 48 smoker and barbecue. Thanks to Aber Living, SENZ's caller of the month will win that. It is a quarter past nine. Let's get to the other Saturday quarter final. Talk about drama on drama on drama. Argentina had to win this twice. It was the Netherlands versus Lionel Messi. Molina, who gets around blends, but then runs in field, passes in towards Messi. Quick feet, twisting and turning. He's got two. Oh, what a pass. Back to Molina. Oh, it's amazing. Argentina have found the opener. Noel Molina got it from Lionel Messi, who dazzled. He broke two lines with one pass, Lionel Messi, and found the run from Noel Molina, who then pushed it past the goalkeeper, and Argentina lead one goal to nil. Gets to the left edge of the box, looking for a cross. Gets around one, brought to ground and it is a penalty. Oh, that's huge. He was just barely inside the box on the left side, Marcos Acuna. He drew Dumfries towards him and it was just a very light trailing foot, the back leg of Acuna. The contact was there, but it was right on the edge of the box. Was it in or was it out? So Lionel Messi has 94 goals for the national team. He has nine goals at the World Cups and now gifted a chance to score as many as the number on his back at the biggest stage of football and Messi puts it down the right side. Lionel Messi from the penalty spot makes it 2-0 for Argentina and all but seals their passage into the semi-finals. Left foot cross from Berghaus and it's in the back of the nets. There is a goal. Wout Veghorst gets one back. The tall target men of the Netherlands have done the first part of their job. In the 83rd minute, across from the left foot of Berghaus, from the right flank, into Veghorst, flicked on underneath the goalkeeper. Gakpo with the right foot, Miners with the left. Five-man wall for Argentina. Maybe the last kick of the game. Miners <gasps> rolls it in, set play. Oh, oh my goodness. goodness! They've done it, the Netherlands! <gasps> it's Wout Veghorst again! The man mountain dressed in orange! <laughs> And the Netherlands have absolutely bamboozled Argentina with the set play. It's the Dutch 2, Argentina 2, right at the death. And that is the end of the 90 minutes, and we are going to extra time. We need a breather. Played short by Petzella. Now it's uh, Lionel Messi, who's inside the box. Gets out to his left, looks for the shot to curl into the top corner, Lionel Messi. But it's off target. He guides it over the crossbar and into the stands. Squares it in boards towards Enzo Fernandez. Dances around Fernandez, gets a cutback. Oh, Argentina, it's saved. The chance was there for Lataro Martinez. And somebody, somewhere, threw a body part in front of the shot. 
Here's Messi, squares it inside. Fernandez wants to unleash. Oh! Takes a deflection, and it's over the crossbar. Second corner taken. Shot comes in, takes a deflection, oh! saved again. I think that's hit the post. It might have hit the post. <laughs> that is it, and this game is going all the way. Penalty shootout. Virgil van Dijk, the captain of his nation, the captain of the Oranje, the captain of Netherlands. Has his penalty saved? Emiliano Martinez. Steven Berghaus is next up for the Dutch. He's been immense since coming on. Left-footed strike. It's saved again. Emiliano Martinez has stopped both of the Netherlands' penalties. This is the kick for Argentina to send them into the semi-finals. Enzo Fernandez slides across to his left, opens up the angle, stutters up, and he's missed. Fernandez has missed. Lautaro Martinez, the striker for Argentina. He scores! And the blue and white dream is still alive. Argentina have survived the orange scare, but they have sent the Netherlands home. And it's Argentina into the final four of the World Cup. Yeah, incredible commentary there, Ricardo, by Jordan Canellis. And uh, Rodrigo Vargas, not to be confused with Rodrigo Vargas, the UFC fighter, Vargas, the football player, losing his mind in the background (laughs) there. That was so good. Uh, Roddy Vargas, yes. So uh, Argentina, what a game. And, yeah, there was heaps of niggle in this one as well. What you didn't hear in the the commentary there was uh, just towards the end of the game when Argentina was still leading 2-1, one of the Argentinian players cleaned a Dutch player out and then before the referee could even blow the whistle, absolutely hammered the ball straight into the Dutch substitute sitting on the bench. Um, which caused all of the Dutch substitutes to come onto the field, and then it delayed the game by about five minutes. Virgil van Dijk came running in, pushed the Argentinian player over to the ground. Referee probably could have sent about three players off and probably and should have carded the entire Dutch bench because coming on the field under the laws of the game is an offence and you should get yellow carded for it if you're not playing. Didn't. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that there's a lot of players who are lucky they're still available to play in the semi-final for Argentina off the back of that game. Uh, we also had Morocco go head-to-head with Portugal Sunday morning. Could Cristiano Ronaldo keep the dream alive? I mean, on the cards was a Messi-Ronaldo World Cup final. Could it happen? And now Morocco trying to work it forwards into play between Amala and Buffal. Almost comes unstuck, but they followed up nicely. Now Atiatala, left foot cross comes in, and Nesri rises, and it's in there! Youssef Nesri has found the opener for Morocco! The story of the World Cup. The last team standing from Africa, and they've taken a lead before half-time. Brace yourselves, Morocco. Here they go, oh, inside the 18-yard box, header. header is on target, and it's off target. Oh, it looked like it was. It looked like it was on target from Gonzalo Ramos, who was rising, got First. in between the two centre-halves, and Already. it was actually a few yards wide. It's the boy that's just come on, Dari. We're in the 82nd minute, Bernardo Silva, cross-field ball from left to right. Porte is on this side, tries to hook it back in the 18-yard box. Clear that. And oh, oh, they haven't cleared it, Morocco. Comes back to Horta, towards Ronaldo, leaves it off to oh, Jim Felix. Shot and a half. And it's a great save from Bono. It was on target from oh. Joao Felix at the top of the yes. box. 
A curling thunderbolts, and Bono was equal to it. Ball in behind, here's Cristiano Ronaldo, takes oh, the shot, saved by Bono, bubble, and he's held it. It's a very good save. Bono, it was a quick break, it was a long pass along the ground from the halfway line to Ronaldo, who was stalking in behind the Moroccan defence. First time shot. First time shot with the right foot, Bono put his body behind it, bobbled it, and then jumped on the second bite. It's gone over everyone's head, but picked up by Liao on the left side of the box. Rafael Leal for Portugal. Second ball comes in. Ronaldo oh, and it's past post. There was a chance. Ronaldo was there. Pepe was there as well. And it's Pepe. glanced off the back post. That off the head chance. of Pepe. And it's off target. Out of play. And another Morocco goal kick. There you go. That was uh, Morocco. 1-0 over Portugal. And the Moroccans, uh, there's a text come through from Kobe here, haven't considered a goal during regulation and extra time, if I'm correct. How's How's that for defence? Well, actually, they've they've conceded one goal at this World Cup. And Logan, do you know who who they conceded that goal against? Say it with me, Ricardo. It was the Canadians. Yeah. Yes, it was. Um, but yeah, right, Kobe. And it was an own goal. So the only team that can score against Morocco <laughs> is Morocco, by the sounds of it. You know, you know what my favourite Ronaldo is. A sad Ronaldo. <laughs> I did see, because it, it was, I mean, it has become the pity party, right, for, for him, um, This since since the whole United thing and, and now, you know, being dropped to the bench by Portugal and things. And while the Portuguese players were, look, you know, sort of uh, consoling each other and congratulating the, the Moroccan players, it said everything that he walked off down the tunnel on his own before anybody else left the field. Uh, and somebody uh, did a photo shot where they put a school bag on him with like all the folders hanging out the top like a petulant schoolboy. And uh, just a speech bubble said, I'm going to tell Piers, um, which I thought was hilarious. So, uh, yeah, no more Ronaldo at the World Cup. It is uh, 9.24 here on SCNZ Mornings with Ian Smith. Thanks to Brandt, your local John Deere equipment supplier. When we come back, we'll have the latest in news and sport. And before 10, we'll catch up with Matt Reed out of the UK. It's 9.29 here, plenty of texts rolling through too on double eight double three, the Temper Bedpost text machine. Temper and Bedpost range of mattresses and adjustable bases adapt to the exact shape of your body so you can put your head and feet up in comfort. This one, I think the final will be between France and Croatia with Croatia coming out on top this time. That was, of course, the 2018 final. That one from Rob. Thanks for your text, Rob. Uh, I can see that happening. And this from one from Doug. Harry Kane missing that penalty was a crucial mistake for England. They could have won the game. It looks like a predictable final. France-Argentina for me. Messi to end his career with the World Cup is what I'm predicting now. That's from Doug. Doug, I can see that happening as well. Thanks for your text. We'll ask those questions and more to Matt Reed when he joins us after the latest in news and sport, which is right now with Johnny Mack. 28 away from 10 o'clock here on SENZ. Mornings with Ian Smith. Thanks to Brandt, your local John Deere equipment supplier. Joining us out of the UK to talk football, uh, predominantly actually to talk England and the fallout from that quarterfinal loss to the French is Matt Reed, English football journalist. You can follow him on Twitter, Matt Reed 66 uh, G'day, Matt. How you doing? Pretty sad, pretty broken. I'll, uh, I'll try. I'll try and package that for the uh, for the purpose of uh, of giving some balanced coverage here, Ricardo. But yeah, I'm yeah I'm feeling it a bit today, really, following the defeat. Yeah, I mean, how did you? How did you like? I know that you you've since gone back and watched the game, so you've watched it twice. I don't know why you did that to yourself, but yeah. you have. Um, <laughs> what on reflection, taking I guess the emotion and the edge of the seat stuff out of it because you know what's going to happen. How did watching the game around a second time, what did you learn from that? And what do you think? How do you think it played out? 
Well, you watch a match for a second time and you can watch it dispassionately um, and you can watch it with all that you've read and all that you've seen the first time around and that kind of that nervous energy that you have first time around, kind of out of it, as you kind of reference. Um, second time watching it, I I think there's there's there's... I mean, a lot of details jumped out really clearly from the first viewing. The, the huge questions about um, Bakaya Saka and why he was taken off when he was dominating on the right wing for England, and how was the was the guy who was um, wasn't having having repeated shots on goal, wasn't creating guilt edged chances, but was definitely on the verge of of, of being in that position. Uh, and was and was worrying the French. Uh, and I know, having spoken to a couple of colleagues in France subsequently, that um, there was across the cities in France there was kind of almost uh, a, well, there was like a deathly silence when he was taken off. Because it was like, well, why has that happened? Why have they taken off the guy who's creating so much trouble? But that but that stood out to me first time. It was a very very strange substitution taking off this guy who was making a real difference. The other the other standout star of the game for me on from the England perspective. Um, was Harry Kane, who uh, scored a penalty. You know, let's not mention the other part of it, but was also was dropping and creating a heck of a lot of chances and doing a really good job in a kind of floating number 10 role. And when I watched it back, I was kind of watching it back to focus particularly on the way that Kane was playing, but also the midfielders behind him um, during the game. I'm, I'm a bit of a long-term fan. We've spoken a number of times, Ricardo, about my appreciation of, uh, of Jordan Henderson and the way the way that he plays and what he does. Um, I mean, what he's done over the years, admittedly, we've been speaking for a long time, and what he's done for years and years and years with his uh, his energy, with his vision, with his work rate, and all of that kind of thing, um, and his passing, which is very underrated. But uh, last night, he was looking his age, um, and and I, I kind of I did expect that as well in the, when watching the game first time around. But I was I was wondering about about Declan Rice and about Jude Bellingham, about about how they were. Um, how they were performing and the way that um, that um, Griezmann, um, Anton Griezmann, who was one of the best best players for um, France, he's come in and he's got a ludicrous amount of praise following that performance, despite the fact that France only created a couple of half chances, uh, and the the assists that he that he got, one was a lovely swung cross. Um, Luke Shaw put a couple of nice crosses in for England as well. Uh, and one was a square ball into empty space uh, 25 yards out with nobody around. So there was quite a lot of hyperbole attached to the performance of Griezmann. Um, so I watched it back mainly just to have a little bit of analysis of, of how Kane played. Um, the midfielder behind him and, and um, just to see if it was justified. Because when watching the game live, as far as Griezmann was concerned, he was he was there continuation player. He was the guy who was move, keeping the ball moving, keeping it at a good speed, using it pretty well in the midfield, but wasn't really creating much. Uh, and I'm just trying to rationalise why all of this praise is coming in. And, and I've kind of come to the conclusion, it's just that so many people have been talking about him being the, the string puller and uh, being the kind of like the, the, the hidden genius at the heart of uh, of this weakened and depleted French French team doing well at this World Cup. And I think it's just a maintenance of the narrative because he was good last night, um, but he was a long way from being the best player on the pitch. Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I, I mean, going back to your point about the, the substitution of Saka, it, the fact that he substituted him was strange. I'll, I'll get, you know, definitely that. But who he brought on made even less sense. I mean, you know, Raheem Sterling 
um, had just come back. He'd been out of camp. He'd just come back from being home because his family had had a home invasion. So his head's not even in the camp. He's also had an extraordinarily ordinary season by his standards since moving to Chelsea. He's not been in any sort of form at all. You've got Marcus Rashford, who's your top scorer at the tournament, on the bench until the 88th minute. I mean, surely if you're going to replace Saka with anybody, it's him. It, it did feel like the, the natural thing to do. The, the issue that by that point of the match, um, when Sterling came on, the, the defensive line had retreated for France. I mean, England were massively on top. Uh, and the midfield line, or the mid, uh, at least three of the midfield players, um, had, had dropped back. And that included Griezmann had dropped back to be sitting just in front of the defensive line. So there's very little space to be penetrating. And that's why I found the, um, the change of, of Sterling coming on rather than a couple of other options to be, to be really curious. Rashford's strength is with, the, with those balls into the space for him to be able to run and to like break the lines and to be able to run in on goal and cutting off the angle. That was a little bit cut back by the, by the way that the, the defensive line had pushed back. Sterling is a little bit more, um, has a little bit more magic in the way that he can make things happen and the little kind of like flick passes and, and, uh, and the movement in really tight spaces. But as you note, he's not really been doing that um, since, I mean, apart from his first few games for Chelsea since moving there, he has been struggling with that. So very curious. I, I, I can't help but feel um, this is uh, Gareth Southgate with his kind of focus on the psychology and on uh, the drives and motivations of players. I think he saw um, Sterling had come back and he believed that Sterling would be inspired by the by what had happened with the break-in in his house, um, basically just to go out there and to put a marker down to say, I'm not taking this, you know. I'm here and I'm going to go and I'm going to go and be an inspirational player. I've been dropped. I'm proving myself. This is, you know, fire in his belly kind of situation. Um, but, the, uh, but that didn't work out to be the case. It was a, a pretty much an anonymous um, dis, um, display as far as Sterling was concerned because there was no space for him to work in. Um, it was such a squeeze match by that point. And, England had been massively on top of France for well let, let's 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 say of the second half 70 80% of the second half weren't creating huge chances but were moving the ball around quite nicely Saka was getting it quite deep and having getting it in in one on two kind of situations um and, and it, it just it was just so strange to see Bukayo Saka come off. I don't. I'm not a particular fan of Gareth Southgate's um, substitutions. I think during this World Cup they haven't been bad, um, but as has been typical long term, slightly too late. And as you say with Marcus Rashford, um, and, as, and, he, and he almost proved to be an inspired change, even though he didn't, wasn't given any kind of time with a free kick that was was a matter of half a foot away from uh, from finding the net, um, which he which he like smashed over in like added time. Um, yeah, the changes haven't been haven't been bad during this World Cup, but they're always just that bit too late. And just thinking, well, the horse is bolted now. Let's really apply some pressure and really go for the win. And, and it didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, what now for Gareth Southgate? I mean, I think you know, I look at things he could have done, players he had available. He's just too conservative, isn't he? Even when you've got the foot on the throat of the opposition, he still won't go that extra mile to uh, to make to put the opposition away. We've seen it against the Italians in the Euro final. We saw it here against the French as well. I mean, it, it feels like he's taken this team as far as he can go and they need to, need to look elsewhere. Well, I'll just wind that back a little bit. I, abs- I think you, you, you nailed the point with the... Um, with the ruthlessness 
the, the points when England are, are on top and when they are um, controlling the play and when they are um, really looking like they're going to be like scoring two, three, and four, even though we have scored multiple goals in this tournament, when he's playing against a team which he's slightly nervous about, when he looks at them and he just thinks, "Go, well, they've got an Mbappe, they've got a Griezmann, they've got a Dembele, they've got pace options, they've got this, this, and that," he always has the players. Well, there are two parts to this. He always has his eye on where can we concede the goal. And that's why he insists on having this kind of double pivot uh, in the defensive midfield positions or with the 4-3-3 that we played, the most defensive three that you could possibly imagine from our squad. Um, in Jude Bellingham, who was a box-to-box, ball-winning midfielder. He had Declan Rice, the sitting former centre-back uh, defensive midfielder. And you had Jordan Henderson, who is a stick-your-foot-in, work-hard, win-the-ball, grind-out results kind of player. When he could have been playing Foden deeper in those positions, he could have been playing Mount in those positions. He could have been playing even Calvin Phillips, who would have been ever so slightly more attacking. What, what about James Madison? I mean, James Madison's played as a dual eight with Leicester before. He can play that role too, and he certainly gives you a hell of a lot more going forward. He certainly, he certainly does. But I think the issue, I think that's pushing Southgate uh, like leaps and bounds beyond where he is. Um, I, I, I agree with you. So taking me back to that key point, I absolutely agree with you that the, the lack of ruthlessness is a major issue. That is the flaw. And it's what's been really, really exposed uh, at the European Championships. Uh, and also, well, it, it's been there for a long time, but in particular, the, the, the European Championships, um, when we were playing against Denmark, when we were playing against Greece in the early, also against Germany in the early stages in the quarterfinals, when we were playing against Italy as well. When you have periods of domination, you say to those players, I'm not suggesting that you have to be going, you have to be playing a, a 4-1, 4-1 with the four midfielders being super attacking players. But what I am suggesting is if you are going to play a double pivot, two defensive midfielders, or if you are going to play a, a defensive midfielder with three centre-backs and wing-backs, then for God's sake, there are another four players who can be told, forget it, forget defending, forget about that, forget the percentages, go out there and do your maverick best. Go out there, run free, don't worry about it, you'll lose the ball sometimes. But we, we, you, you're going to create chance and opportunity by terrifying the opposition with the strengths that you've got. And that's not what England do under Gareth Southgate. You see the way that um, Jack Grealish's game has changed since, since starting to play for Southgate. The space in front of him, there's space him to drive into, there's a man to beat. He now plays it square and he plays it backwards and makes a run to try and find space. It's a give-and-go mentality. And England plays some very good football under Southgate. But those attacking players need to be freed to go out and play their game and not panic about giving the ball away. If, you, if, you're a, if you're a running player, run free, go and attack, don't panic about retention. And, and that's part of the reason, I think, why Madison hasn't had a look in, because Madison will give the ball away a little bit. But the fact of the matter is he creates chances. The, the other part, the general conservative detail, um, just going back to, that four, to the 4-3-3 that's been played, um, the three midfielders, one of those three, Bellingham, Bellingham has been has been pushing forward, and as as did um, Henderson. But both of them again were are players who can win the ball back and have that mentality. And it just it's just slightly too much. And last night it was shown up that we were short of that creative presence in the midfield when we just needed one person to put their foot on the ball and make maybe be more willing to make a few of those little runs into spaces from midfield and break the lines. And mm. uh, that and that in the end is what held back England. Yeah, it is hundred percent. So what do you think? Uh, will South Southgate be the England manager going forward. Despite all of my moaning, Ricardo, I still like him. 
he's done so, <laughs> and it's and it's maddening. It really is. I, I I've been to World Cups with England. Um, I've been to World Cups under Sven. I've been to World Cups under Fabio Capello. I'd missed out on Brazil because of oh, you don't you don't want to hear the backstory to that one. It was it's a good backstory, but it's too long for today. Um, so I missed out on Hodgson fun. Uh, and I've missed, but I didn't miss out on Capello Payne and McLaren Payne and all of these managers that I've watched and I've I've been to tournaments with, um, or missed out on tournaments with. Southgate has created something with England, which is such. It's not a level above; it's so many levels above where we were before. It's remarkable what we're doing now, um, and we. I, I've I've um, I've spoken to some friends in North Africa over the uh, since since the match. Morocco, Morocco, and Egypt-based uh, people, uh, journalists. Um, and they said, so we know we just love watching England. They played so well. I mean, the Moroccan fans were, were really enjoying watching England play yesterday. And they wanted England to win, not because they thought they had a better chance of beating them, just because they were the fun team to watch. They were the ones who actually were moving the ball quite nice, who had some quite exciting players, even though they're always watching behind them to make sure they're not giving the ball in ball away. Um, but we are playing good football. There's no doubt about that. And he, he has achieved that from an incredibly low point with uh, players who were full of fear, with players who were disconnected from the country, with factions in the squad, um, with uh, players like dragging a weight around behind them. And but the only way that exists for these players now, because they really have confidence, they really enjoy playing together, they're a really good unit. The only um, issues that there are in the squad now, there's a little bit of lingering. Um, he's got his favourites and he'll pick those players. And what the heck have I got to do at club level to get myself past somebody who's not even playing at inter- international level? Sorry, at club level for their, you know, for their club. Um, the Harry Maguire example. Um, and, and what have I got to do to, to really convince him when I'm playing so well and I'm, I'm having all these assists I'm doing so well in the James Madison example mm. um, he does have those players and that, and that is a, it's, a, it's a little bit of an issue but the fact of the matter is look what's happened to Harry Maguire at this tournament just look how he's played um, and in the majority of the matches he's been one of the best two or three players in the England team a lot of the time it is because the ball you know, is magnetised to his head and he, win- and he wins everything that comes, ac- comes across in that, in that kind of fashion uh, and, he, and he is a bit clunky and he is he, and he, he's possible to be clunky but some of his balls out from the back uh, yesterday but also against, the, against Senegal and against the Welsh were absolutely fantastic and were launching attacks um, same with Luke Shaw who's hit and miss Manchester United but has been remarkable at this World Cup um, he's really, he really manages to, to, to lift players to another level and he's done that remarkably with England I think he should be sticking around but I think there needs to be a very very clear message uh, given um, by the FA to him while they're, while they're probably begging him to stay because there are no other strong options at the moment because Graham Potter's in a job that he wouldn't leave for the England job uh, Eddie Howe's in a job that he wouldn't leave for the England job and they're the two most obvious homegrown kind of options um, but but the, the FA do need to sit there and say, look, why have we failed this time? Mm. And they need to tell him. There needs yeah. to be a clear message to say there is a reason why we failed, and it isn't just because we had a, had a crap ref. It isn't just because um, because uh, Raheem had to go home. It isn't just because we had a few of our players were out of form coming into the tournament. Because he's, he's overcome that. Yeah, you got to put that back much, on him. 
Phil, I think. I think. Yes. Um, Matt, sorry, yes, mate. We're, we're going we're gonna to have to wrap it. We're going to have to leave it there, mate. We have a, uh, a couple of things we need to get to. So, mate, I really appreciate your time. And I know you're mid-vent, and I know that I was your counselling session. But take a deep <laughs> breath, my friend. Thank you for your time, and enjoy the rest of the tournament if you can. Smithy's Cricket Update. Thanks to Razine, New Zealand's most trusted paint brand. Yeah, updating you on the uh, way the White Ferns are going. Uh, they just started their ODI series against Bangladesh yesterday in Wellington. Uh, Bangladesh opted to bat first. Uh, we restricted them to 180 for eight. Best with the ball, Jess Kerr. Four for 23 from 10 overs, including four maidens. Uh, they also lost three to runouts. Lauren Down affecting two of those. And really, after that, the White Ferns pretty much cruised. Sophie Devine was out for 21, and Amelia Kerr got a first ball duck um, but Susie Bates 93 not out Maddie Green 59 not out it was a cruise for the White Ferns up next former White Fern Rebecca Rolls yeah, it's three past ten here on Mornings with Ian Smith. Thanks to Brandt, your local John Deere equipment supplier. Coming up this hour, we have a panel with Jamie Wall and Ollie Rich, who will also have a uh, Ollie Rich, who will also have a catch up with Paul Mawadi from the TAB as well. And a reminder that we have Mike Venus live in studio from eleven o'clock for our new tennis show, The Serve, as well. Of course, I mentioned just before news and sport the ODI series that the White Ferns are engaged in with Bangladesh. Well, uh, joining us now is a former White Fern who has over 100 ODI internationals to her credit. Morena, Rebecca Rolls. Morena, Ricardo, I'm good, thanks. That's the story, mate. This Bangladesh series, um, I don't know, I don't want to say it's been a doddle, but I mean, it has been pretty comfortable for the White Ferns, hasn't it? What do you think Ben Sawyer's getting out of this as a coach? Yeah, I actually think he's getting quite a lot out of it. And I, I also would say, I think Bangladesh, um, you know, they're still learning as a team. They just clocked up their 50th ODI yesterday and and they're still sort of finding their way in uh, international cricket. And I think they get better all the time. However, I mean, there's no denying a gap. And you see that on all the rankings and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, uh, the White fans should be dominating the series. But I think for Ben Sawyer, it's as much about finding out who his top 11 are as he heads into a T20 World Cup. And then, you know, building for the next ODI World Cup. Who are those players and, and what roles do they play within the strategy you know, so that he wants to bring to the game? And, and, and also about giving opportunities. I mean, he's sort of... More than any White Ferns coach, probably, um, he's inherited a bit of a, not only a team, but a legacy. So he doesn't have the background of players. He hasn't, you know, come through the, the domestic scene and, and kind of had those years sitting there watching cricket in New Zealand to kind of know who his next sort of cabs off the rank are. So, so I think there's, there's a, it's a bit of an exploration uh, mission for him, but also to kind of, you know, with the players he has got, and, you know, some of them have been playing cricket for a long time now, is how does he get the best out of them and make sure that I think... But he takes their game from sort of a, um, you know, what they have been doing and, and improves it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, you you, mean, you touched on a couple of things there. Uh, one of those for me is uh, Leah Tahuhu. Um, I, I know she was let go uh, for the ODI side of the program, but the way she stood up in the T20 side of the program um, makes me think that, you know, in, in pretty much most formats that we play, that she should be part of the equation. And I know he's, he's using this as an opportunity to look at others, but uh, do, you, do you think that they should be looking at Leah and there's been maybe uh, under previous management an error made and not retaining her to a central contract? I think every bowler in New Zealand has got a chance of making this team at the moment. Um, and there's no denying Leah's performed well, particularly in the T20s, um, and that she has really, really nailed that sort of side of the game and has some great skills there. 
Uh, with ODI cricket, and, and bear in mind, I'm not a fast bowler, so I am, I am quite objective here uh, by choice. Um, there's, you know, there are some some specific phases, and, and I think any coach needs to be able to have a stock of bowlers in each phase that'll do a job. And, and, and for me, I think that's what any coach would be looking at. So for Leah, it's about proving she can do probably three or four jobs in, instead of the one or two she's doing extremely well in the T20 series. And, you know, you've got Hannah Rowe on the sidelines. She'll probably get a look at her, I would imagine, at some point. Um, so, you know, it, it remains to be seen. Um, and then you've got someone like, uh, you know, Jess Kerr, who returns career best figures, four for 23. Um, hardly, <laughs> she took her, she got two wickets before there was a run hit off her, um, you know, and some good performances by Hayley Jensen. Molly Penfold looked sharp. So, for me, the bowling side of the White Ferns at the moment, that's pretty tough to get into. And behind the sticks, obviously, has also been a uh, a point where we're looking for some depth. We're looking for some new names. Jess McFadgen, man, she's uh, she's had a bit of a bad bad luck, but she's finally managed to pull the gloves on in Angie yesterday. Got a couple of dismissals. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see her with the bat, though. No, we only got to see four people with the bat, <laughs> with the bat yesterday. Um, you know, which is what happens sometimes when you're chasing a, a low total and, and your openers do the job, but. Yeah, I mean, she's she's someone else Ben Sawyer will be looking at, um, you know, after the retirement of Katie Martin and even Rachel Priest. And before that, it was uh, some other old has-been, I can't remember. <laughs> um, but, you know, so the White Ferns have had these mainstays for decades now and not, you know, not, there's been a, you know, a couple of others, Natalie Dodd, Bernadine Bazoon, who have come and, come and gone a little bit, but they've kind of had the luxury of not needing to kind of, they've always had sort of someone there. So this is quite a step change for um, the White Ferns and, and Ben Sawyer sort of picked the team up at that time. So, so yeah, Jess will get, um, you know, what, after what has been a not straightforward introduction to the White Ferns, it's fair to say, uh, for her. She'll get a, a couple of more opportunities um, and might even get a bat. Uh, Izzy Gaze is over, or was over in India with the development tour. She's got an under-19s World Cup to, to sort of prepare for as well. And, and then who knows what after that for both of them. So I think... It'll probably take a good couple of years before, you know, Ben Sawyer's comfortable with, with what he wants. And, you know, really good to have two pretty, you know, at least two good keepers vying for that position. Yeah, we've got those two there. Um, so what's our depth, do you think, um, at, at keeper? I know we've got the T20 World Cup, so uh, maybe, you know, keeping for longer periods of time and that sort of thing, you can get away with, uh, well, uh, sorry, shorter periods of time, you can get away with having someone who's not a specialist. We saw Maddie Green jump in when uh, Jess got sick uh, in the T20s. I mean, is she an option going forward or was that very much just an emergency job? My personal opinion is I think that has to be an emergency. I think you lose too much if you don't have a good a specialist keeper. And, you know, Maddie's someone who over, you know, that two or three years I've, I just referred to when you sort of been the number one keeper, she should absolutely be still doing some work and, and be that option because, she, let's face it, it's not the worst. Um, you know, <laughs> she might think it didn't go that well, but look, I think she did pretty pretty well considering. Um, you also got to remember you take a really good fielder out of the mix as well with Maddie Green and a good, you know, um, that, that is a loss, particularly in T20 cricket. So I I would like to think that we have a stock of good specialist wicketkeepers who can bat and can bat in the top seven to choose from because for me in the modern game, um, to, and even frankly, you know, in the longer format, I think if your keeper's not batting in that top sort of seven or eight, then, then you're, you're having to pick two humans to do a job that you should just be able to get out of one. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. That. Uh, what, what's your take on Izzy? Um, how far away from Jess is she? How far away from uh, being White Ferns capable do you think she is? Well, Izzy went to West Indies as the first White Ferns keeper, so yeah. I, I don't think there's, um, I don't think she's kind of away from Jess at all. I, I would say, uh, you know, 
if I'm Ben Sawyer, I'm thinking, well, these are two girls I've actually just met. I need to have a look at them both. So, so I think they're both contenders. They're, they're a long way apart in age. That's probably the distance. Um, so, you know, you've, you've probably weighing up a little bit more time on earth with Jess versus Izzy, who's still learning her trade. Um, but I think both of them, uh, you know, have, have a lot to offer. Um, and, you know, but with, as I said, with the bat, that's possibly where each of them might look to try and get an edge because, you know, if you keep, if you can't really separate the keepers, that's where the coach and selectors are going to want to look to find that bit extra. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Okay. Um, now, we mentioned Maddie Green. Uh, her and Susie yesterday, 131 from 134. It's not a bad partnership, is it? Uh, I was watching <laughs> that, though. <laughs> I was watching it, and I was doing the maths in my head as I'm looking how many we need, how many Susie needs, how mm. many we need, how many Susie needs. Do you think there was ever a conversation out there about making sure that Susie got the ton? No, look, I'd be very surprised, other than maybe a joking one. And if, if there was Maddie Green, would have probably initiated and said, do you want me to block everything out um, <laughs> you know, to let you get that? And I think we probably saw a little bit of a foot down from Susie as she sort of got into the 80s to go, well, hang on, if I'm going to give it a nudge, now's the time. But it was, it was sort of, as you say, there weren't that many runs left, so it would be the kind of thing you'd have to get done, you know, in three or four balls and send them to the boundary in order to make it happen. But absolutely not, I think... Both those players have played long enough uh, that they go that they would be thinking if you start to try and manipulate things like that, sometimes you can come unstuck and someone gets out and, and not out for both of them is always going to be the best result. So, I mean, I think Susie will take her 93 off 91, um, put it in her already impressive kind of you know locker room of, of successes, and, and you know what a what a support act by Maddie Green. And it was hard out there to start with. I think talking to Susie after the game, that, you know the. The Bangladesh bowlers are handy, and I think young Marufa Akta, who's you know 17, <laughs> she's not phased by legends. You know, she just run, runs in and bowls, and saw her beat the back quite a bit. So you know, there's a bit to deal with early on, um, and really good for both of them to stick at it. Yeah, it was, it was. I I interviewed Susie probably a week or so ago. It was just before the T20 series, and sort of said, "Hey, look, you know, you got the ODI, ODI series coming up. Uh, you realise that." You've got seven tons against seven different countries, uh, but Bangladesh isn't one of them. Is that something you want to add to? So, hence my intrigue watching that countdown yesterday. I was, I was, I was trying to measure the runs to see if she was going to get there. I got close. You probably sowed the seed for her, but anyway, there's Napier and Hamilton. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, you know what Napier's like with international cricket. It's guaranteed to rain. Hey, um, hey, 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 people. <laughs> we the the difference that you've seen, if any, between Ben Sawyer's setup and um, what we had before under Bob Carter. Um, one thing that I've noticed is that the players are talking tactically more openly uh, you know we had I'm trying to remember who it was that, that was on it was it Amelia Kerr came on saying that you know um, in the T20s we aim to score at least 160 and try and restrict the other team to 110 120 and I asked Ben Sawyer the question he said well you know we're pretty open about it uh, for ODIs we're aiming to score 270 and restrict the oppo to 230 I mean that's been a standout for me in terms of a bit of a change but what have you noticed in terms of a change of approach or style? Yeah, it's been interesting. You know, when you look from afar, you do pick up on those things, don't you? And and I, I sort of, I think it's really good from Ben Sawyer to be um, be open about that. I mean, there's no secret, is there? Everyone knows what the rules are in cricket and international cricket and how many balls you get and what you're trying to do. So, so I don't think there's any reason to be coy. Uh, and and probably what that's done, and and I'm, I'm I guess I'm guessing a little bit, is, is turn the players into those numbers and figure, oh, okay, so here's some sort of. 
I don't know, guardrails or benchmarks that, that we might look to and, and start to, you know, really generate that chat and that, that kind of common understanding in the changing room. And, and I don't necessarily think that hadn't happened before, but as you say, it's probably more visible now. Um, and I think also, uh, you know, talking to the players themselves, and there's a maturity that's happening, and it's probably been since the World Cup as well. I think they actually moved on from strides during that tournament. But some of the senior players in particular, not just uh, Sophie and, and Susie, but, you know, Maddie, Lauren, there's a few others around there who, who are probably taking a bit more ownership of that and learning to trust sort of not just the plan, but also what happens in the moment when Ben's in the changing room and, and can't sort of, you know, really sort of affect anything. But what do we do as players in that moment? Well, what are we talking about with each other? How do we sort of realign things or recalibrate to make sure we're still sort of shooting for those goals? So that's probably what I've seen, I think, a bit more is, yeah, the players start to really tune into that kind of numbers side of things. We've got about two months before the T20 World Cup in South Africa next year. Um, how far off do you think the White Ferns are from the Indias, the Englands and the Australias? Well, oh, we saw it in the ODI World Cup and, and it, I think it's even more more so in um, T20s. But you're only a, a win away, aren't you? You're only probably an over away from, from making that game yours and that sort of thing. And, and I mean, there's no sort of... I don't think you can dispute Australia are, are out front, aren't they? There's, there's daylight between them and others, and, and then I think England us and India, which I still think, and, and the ODI World Cup proved this as well, was that on, on the day any of those teams can win. But even, you know, against Australia, there are times when, you know, we, we've had Australia on the ropes and they've found a way, as they tend to do. So, I mean, my personal opinion is I think as we approach that T20 World Cup, really start to lock in the plans and, and the players, you know, start to understand their roles and, 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 you know, then you're sort of getting into those finer details like the match-ups and, and, and the conditions and, and that sort of thing, those little one percenters. Like, I don't think we're that far away at all. Um, it, Australia will always be the team to beat and I'll be surprised if that's ever not the case in, you know, the next wee while. But the main thing is that the teams under that are, I think, you know, the clusters closing in. So, so yeah, look, it's going to be a fascinating World Cup and, and the South African conditions, which you know, are some of the best in the world. Um, you know, you, then you've got the West Indies in Pakistan, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh are the next ones. And, and you know, that you might look at them as saying, you know, there's, there's definitely a, a tier difference there, but I don't think so. West Indies have been strong, you know, so there's a, there's a lot to look forward to and I don't think any team could take a game easily. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Not too far away then, not too far away. Um, Rebecca, thank you very much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it, mate. Go well, have a great weekend. If I don't talk to you beforehand, have a great Christmas, eh? You too, Ricardo. Thanks very much. Big talk, big opinions, the panel. Jamie Wall and Ollie Ritchie with with me this morning. Gentlemen, how are we? Oh, not well, bad, Ricardo. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks. Good. Uh, glad you both had a good weekend. Uh, Ollie, I've got to ask you: Did you see Jamie's uh, tweet suggesting uh, that we should bear with him and and then waiting with bated breath to see what he had to say next? When what he had tweeted was a picture of Eddie Jones in an All Blacks blazer. <laughs> I follow. I've got alerts on my phone for when Jamie tweets because you know you're always going to get something with a bit of gold. Uh, and that was absolutely no different. I thought you might have been referring to his O'Hagan tweet from earlier on. Um, but, yeah, certainly uh, that, that would be um, an interesting situation for New Zealand rugby to find themselves in. It certainly isn't going to happen. Uh, I'm not sure if they could quite handle Eddie Jones. Um, and if I was Eddie Jones, I'd just be relaxing uh, on my massive payout from the RFU and waiting for the next international union to come along um, because it's going to happen. Um, it's probably just unlikely to be uh, the New Zealand one. 
Yeah, I would agree. Uh, Jamie, how many people did you suckle with that? Because I, I saw it and I was like, I messaged Logan, producer Logan, and I said, Jamie's suggesting that we get Eddie Jones on board for New Zealand Rugby. And he's like, is he? And I went back and I had a look. I went, no, he's fishing. What, what, sort, of, what sort of reaction did you get? Well, firstly, RIP O'Hagans, um, if the rumours are to be true. Ollie and I have had some great times in there. Uh, but, um, no, that was definitely a, a bit of a joke. Uh, but uh, then, I, I, you know, as per usual, um, I like to put tweets out in the evening New Zealand time and just sort of turn my phone off and go to sleep and wake up and see what's happened um, once they hit the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and um, the response was actually a lot bigger than what I got, especially considering I... I had to teach myself how to use Photoshop to actually get a picture of Eddie Jones's face on a um, on Ian Foster's body. Uh, but I, when I actually woke up and thought about it, and a lot of people had actually earnestly responded and said, "Like, yeah, let's try this. Let's see what happens." And Ollie did mention just before that uh, you know New Zealand rugby couldn't wouldn't be able to handle Eddie Jones. And I remember last week uh, we were talking about um, how NZ rugby couldn't really hasn't really grasped the concept of the fact that uh, the all black coach is their figurehead and is uh, is the face of the organization well if they hired Eddie Jones he'd have to be because he, he wants to make himself um, that uh, that that figurehead um, and wants to put himself out there and wants to be able to do all the talking and I'm I'm starting to think like actually it might not be such a bad idea after all because he knows how to handle the media, um, having dealt with them um, a couple of times. Um, he knows how to uh, engage the public. He knows how to get headlines. He understands um, what a narrative um, is around the team. And um, I'm not saying, I'm not, I don't for once believe that NZ Rugby would actually ever entertain this idea, but it's not as far-fetched as when I first thought it up as a joke about 12 hours ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I see where you're coming from. I mean, I, that would have to be at the expense of signing... Uh, one Razor Robertson though, so I mean, in terms of handing Eddie a uh, a poison chalice, shall we say? I, I don't think it'd get any more poison than that, would it, Ollie? Yeah, probably not. Um, for a, a kind of a rugby public that um, has been sort of wanting um, to see Razor given an opportunity, um, it would be quite interesting to see what the reaction was if they then turned around and said, actually, we're going to unveil Eddie Jones. Um, from a media perspective, it would be great. You know, Jamie mentioned it before. He knows how to handle the media. He knows what he's doing. He knows the, that, like, the responsibility that comes with being the face of a team. And that's something that I don't think um, Ian Foster has quite grasped. That he, like, the All Blacks coach is kind of the face of it all. You, you represent, when you're the coach, you represent the All Blacks. Um, and, you know, that hasn't really come across with Ian Foster at all. I think with Eddie Jones, it would be um, an absolute kind of dream from a media perspective because you know you'd get gold uh, all the time and I think you'd be able to formulate that relationship um, and he would understand his responsibility there as well. But certainly you'd have uh, the outrage coming from the from the Scott Robertson supporters if he was overlooked again. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Jamie, it'd be interesting to see what he will do next. I did see somebody suggest, and I think this is possibly... Uh, the most Eddie Jones option yet is that he um, goes and acts as a consultant to the uh, Michael Checkers Pumas because they're in the same group as England at the World Cup just for you know the next nine ten months. That would be such an Eddie Jones move. Uh, but what do you reckon his move will be? 
Well, that, that's an interesting uh, proposition, but I really don't think there's enough room in any uh, changing room anywhere in the world for Michael Checker and Eddie Jones's egos to be to coexist. Uh, I, I think he can pretty much do whatever he wants. I mean, there's a number of clubs and domestic teams anywhere uh, that would gladly have him on board, uh, especially back in Australia, uh, who are gearing up for a, a Super Rugby comp, uh, competition where they really need to build on what, uh, I guess, a, a surprising amount of success that they had um, last year against the New Zealand team. So, I mean, any of those teams would have him back and have him in a heartbeat, especially the ones he's formerly been uh, a part of. Uh, but I think long term, um, the rumours of him going to the USA and acting as some sort of, uh, not just a coach, but czar, I guess, of, of everything that's going on in their rugby organisation as they build up to hosting a World Cup as some part of a 10-year plan. Because really, that team, that men's, that men's program that they've got over there is in, uh, just an absolute mess uh, if they're going to actually... You know, be something to be, um, it'd be any any sort of competitive level by the time they host their own tournament. Um, considering that they haven't even qualified uh, for the next one, uh, and the fact that they would having someone like Eddie Jones there would be would mean that it would unlock a lot of capital uh, and a lot of um, a lot of talent over there for them uh, as they build towards what will be obviously the biggest. Um, uh, thing that they'll ever do uh, in a rugby in a rugby sense. Can you imagine it, Ollie? Uh, Eddie Jones is the head of uh, rugby development uh, slash consultant, and Rick Salizzo is chair of US Rugby working together. Uh, what do you reckon? You give it a, give it an opportunity? <laughs> well, I think um, I'm not so sure about Rick, but I think certainly I can see Eddie Jones fitting that mould. And those those points that Jamie make uh, made are, are absolutely accurate. Like. They need to get their, their A into G uh, over in the US because they're an absolute dog's breakfast at the moment. Um, they're hosting a World Cup, the one after, after next in, in 2031. Um, you know, if you can get a guy like Eddie Jones um, with all his knowledge uh, and experience in there to help build that program, um, be that in a, in, a, in a coaching sense or more of a, a wider kind of mentoring sense, um, I think it would be a very smart move um, from, from USA Rugby to get someone like Eddie in there with all his rugby smarts to try and turn that in, that program into something that uh, is somewhat respectable. Um, because, yeah, at the moment, they, they obviously haven't qualified for, for France next year. So he's got a bit of a runway right from kind of next year to, to say, right, you've got until whatever date to, to try and build this program up. And, you know, he can probably charge them a bucket load for it. Big talk, big opinions, the panel. Joining us on the panel today, Jamie Wall and Ollie Ritchie. Ollie, uh, start with you, mate. We had the uh, Rugby Sevens in South Africa this weekend. I stopped following the All Black Sevens team after they lost the group game to Samoa, after they had been, you know, had an absolute horror show in, in Hong Kong. How the hell did they make the final? <laughs> Quite the turnaround, eh? Um, you know, well, they've got enough players that have the experience and the smarts to kind of dig themselves out of those holes, and they've found themselves in those holes before, um, and and have found ways to dig themselves out, and they've obviously just done that again. Um, but I, I mean, I think the real the real sort of standout from that was 
to kind of turn around from the Black Fern Sevens, um, you know, especially against Australia, who have had their number recently, um, and particularly in those major events, Com Games, World Cup. Um, you know, they've been unable to get past Australia, who have, you know, Rugby Australia has poured a, a lot of money and resource into that Sevens program, um, and have certainly been reaping the benefits. Um, but you know, to do that without their key their key players like Sarah Hidden, E. Portia Woodman, Stacey Flula, you know, um, I think speaks to a lot of uh, the work uh, that's gone into that program, but, but the depth they've been able to build with some of those younger players who are, who are clearly ready to perform uh, on the world stage. I thought that was a great comeback from them. Yep, great comeback from them. Uh, the Black Ferns beating the Aussies 31-14 in the final. The All Black Sevens are lo- losing at 7-12 to Samoa in the final. And, mate, you just about needed water wings out there, didn't you, Jamie? Yeah, yeah, not the best weekend in Cape Town, uh, weather-wise. Um, but just, it, it it is kind of ironic, really, that Sevens at the moment has got to a point, a place where I think maybe 20, 25 years ago when they started the Seven series uh, that they that what they probably aim were aiming for has come true, which is that you could have teams like New Zealand potentially dropping out in pool phases and then coming back and almost winning the next tournament, and that you still have your strong teams, your your I guess star star teams like Fiji, New Zealand, South Africa, etc. Uh, but they're always under the threat uh, by by teams like Spain. Um, you know, Uruguay made the quarterfinals. You know, like so it's actually turned into what they what they really wanted to uh, in terms of having something as close to, I guess, football um, as possible in terms of competitiveness. And now they're just going to blow it all up mm. <laughs> next year and start all over again, um, which is which is a bit, seems a bit off. But then again, you look at the crowds, you look at the interest uh, in sevens and that it's obvious that something kind of needs to change because, you know, the, it, it's just not what it was. Um, obviously, not so much, not just in New Zealand, but sort of everywhere. I think, I think Hong Kong's probably the only tournament that's actually stayed strong in terms of its loyal um, attendances and, and and atmosphere and everything. So, it'll be really interesting to see what they do with it. But yeah, like I said, it is pretty ironic that it's it's actually a very kind of intriguing competition right now. But yeah, and, and on the Black Ferns um, Sevens um, themselves, well. I think it's just the perfect way to close out a year of what, what, what's been probably the most important year of women's rugby that, ever mm-hmm. uh, in New Zealand. It's, it's really important that um, you know, the, the, the both teams um, have come through in kind of trying circumstances because you know, for all of the story that we've heard about the Blackfinch 15s winning the World Cup and it's, it's a fantastic story and everything, it has kind of come at the expense of the Sevens team. Um, and like Ollie mentioned, um, that they have managed to pull off uh, quite a resounding win um, without some really top players and that they've managed to develop some depth in their program because going forward, I think that you're going to be, we're not going to be seeing um, the likes of uh, Sarah Hirani, um, Ruby Tui, et cetera, playing much longer. You know, they're kind of getting towards the end of their careers. I mean, Niall Williams is still going on, good for her, you know, at age 34, I think it is. Uh, but there is going to need to be a whole new generation of young um, Sevens players coming through and it looks like the future is pretty bright there. Yeah, it does. It does. Are you surprised that the A League, uh, the, the A League? Sorry, I've just I've got that on the telly in front of me. That the uh, New Zealand Rugby didn't encourage the Flulas and the Porsche Woodmans and the Ruby Tuis to stick with Super Rugby Alpeki rather than go back to the Sevens, given everything they built uh, with the Rugby World Cup here, Ollie. Um, yeah, a, a little bit, and it's a, it's a shame for um, for Super Rugby Alpeki that they, they're not going to be there, but. 
that kind of also speaks to that point that Jamie was just making is that like at some point they have to both the sevens and fifteens program need to look to the, the kind of next generation that they need to need to build up. So like if you look ahead to the next World Cup, it's unlikely that you're going to have you know Sarah Hidden, Portia Woodman, Stacey Fleurler playing uh, in that fifteens World Cup. So you know as great as it would have been, and and I do take the point you know in terms of that interest that you know when you have your marquee players there, that's certainly going to drive interest. Um, but you know from a performance side of things, um, it probably makes more sense to have um, a competition where you can start to develop those younger players, that next generation of players, so that in you know four years time or three years time as it would be for the next World Cup, you know you're not finding yourselves in a bit of a hole where you haven't built up um, a bit of depth, so that when those players do re- re- do retire, um, the transition can be somewhat seamless, and it, I think that applies to, to both competitions. It would have been great to have um, them in, in Super Rugby Opiki, but that competition needs to kind of find its own way um, and and build its own, own depth of players, I suppose. Yeah, right. Okay, we just had this text through, actually. Eddie Jones was coaching schoolboys Saturday morning, apparently. There you go, just loves it. And uh, one SR Donald last week uh, on our Run Home show said Eddie Jones would be great as having a different, he has a different way of looking at everything nine months out from a World Cup. So uh, who knows? Maybe you're being strangely prophetic, Jamie. We will see. We'll see. Um, before we finish, lads, the uh, Football World Cup is at semi-final stage now. Uh, we had all sorts of drama, all sorts of excitement over the weekend, but also um, a lot of sadness around the death of one of the leading uh, football journalists, uh, certainly the leading football journalist out of the US in Grant Wall. Um, what did you, you you make about that and, and some of the questions around uh, his passing, Jamie? Uh, yeah, it was a real shock. Um, I'm really familiar with uh, Grant Wall's uh, work and his uh, commitment to, I guess, uh, what you call like social justice issues um, within football, which has a lot, uh, especially around this World Cup. Um, you know, he was very, he's been very vocal uh, around um, the issues around Qatar and, and the hosting and and everything like that. So uh, to see him. <laughs> pass away uh, quite suddenly uh, during a football match uh, in Qatar itself um, is well I mean I don't want to I don't want to say anything that you know potentially not true I mean you know we don't really know much about it I know his brother's come out and been um, you know made some pretty serious statements about uh, what might have happened but yeah it it doesn't look great uh, from from the start but I mean he'll be a guy that we definitely missed, not just mm. in football commentary, but uh, in uh, across the sports world, because he's the sort of guy whose sort of fearlessness uh, is something that, you know, people like myself, well, I, I really look up to. Um, and so, I mean, hopefully someone can pick up where he left off, uh, because what he's started, the conversations that he's, he's, he's brought to the public eye, are definitely ones that are worth having. Um, and yeah, I think there's going to be a lot more talk about uh, what's actually going on here um, uh, going forward, especially considering that he's a, a US citizen um, who, you know, met, I guess, like an untimely end uh, in the Middle East uh, is, is something that I think the government is going to be taking a keen interest in. Yeah, well, you would, um, especially given the, the circumstances around it. And I, I don't know if you, you're aware of this, Ollie, but his wife is actually a uh, professor of infectious diseases and uh, is. Uh, an advisor to Joe Biden. Oh, 
Right. Well, she. Well, you know, <laughs> I did. I wasn't aware of that, but um, that's a pretty good relationship to have. Uh, and like like Jamie mentioned, it's um, you know, you you don't want to you don't want to come out with allegations when you're not really sure what the case may be. But it doesn't look good. It's uh, you know, he was pretty public um, about uh, him being kind of kicked out or banned for wearing the the rainbow t-shirt. Um, and you know, for then that same reporter um, to to pass away during a game. Um, is, yeah, certainly a pretty untidy look. And I think, um, yeah, that, that government will be taking a, a very keen interest um, in what comes next. Mm, they will indeed. Uh, to slightly more trivial matters, uh, Jamie, who have you got so far? There's four, ga- four teams left in the World Cup. Who's winning it all? Um, as a fan of poor sportsmanship, uh, my, my full support's behind Argentina uh, after that game on the weekend. Um, I loved what I saw in that whole thing um, from right through to the post-match interviews as well. Really enjoyed all of that. So uh, vamos, boys. Um, get it done. Get it done. All right. What about you, Ollie? Yeah, likewise. Um, I think I'd love to see Argentina win it. But, uh, you know, I'd love to see Messi win a World Cup. Um, and I love that, how blunt they were. Uh, afterwards, and just you know, came out with some uh, some stinging attacks on the referee. It was um, it was pretty good. We need more of that in sport. Um, but yeah, I'd love to see them win it, and I'd hate to see France win it because I think they'll be unbearable if they do. Yeah, yeah, um, more unbearable than the Poms or less? Um, oh, definitely, definitely more. The, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Poms are un, the Poms are unbearable regardless. Like you know, they win one group match against Iran, and suddenly football's coming home. So, you know, they're just unbearable regardless. And we don't have to worry about them anymore because, you know, Harry Kane put his uh, put his penalty in the second tier of the stand. So that doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, I think uh, France will just be, yeah, unbearable if, if they win. Yeah, he did a Harry Wilkinson. He certainly did. Good stuff, Ollie. Uh, thanks, Jamie. I really appreciate your time. Boys, go well. Thanks, mate. Cheers, mate. Merry Christmas. Yeah, you too. You too. Uh, it is the panel for another day. We are 16 away from 11. Paul Mawadi from the TAB, not too far off. It is 11 away from 11 o'clock. Uh, bet live on your favourite sports. Download the TAB app today. Paul Mawadi from the TAB with us. G'day, Paulie. How are you? Oh, I'm very good. Thanks, Ricardo. How are you? Uh, you pick up a few multis on the weekend, did you? Uh, unfortunately not. Unfortunately not, mate. Uh, I had I, I did really enjoy your Mbappe to score France to win against England, and I took that. Um, I went large on that rather than just put it round. And, uh, well, France did win. Uh, Mbappe was pretty much consigned to the wing and didn't get a look in. No, exactly. Uh, but there were plenty of punters who did jump on the French. Um, to get up over the top of the English, uh, and they were they were richly uh, rewarded, um, and, and they were helped along by uh, Harry Kane. Yeah, they were helped along by Harry Kane. Uh, was there a a penalty a penalty miss option uh, at the tab, and did anybody get on it? <laughs> it would have been paying a dollar one, surely. <laughs> any man, any knockout match the English are involved in, you've got. Uh, if you'd have an option like that, it wouldn't be paying a hell of a lot, to be fair. Oh, so I guess, as uh, George Gregan would say, four more years. Four more years indeed, mate. Four more years indeed. Yeah. So we've got Croatia against the Argentinians. We've got uh, Morocco, the surprise packet, against the French, who are probably the favourites now. Um, how's, the, how's the market looking and how's the money been coming? Yeah, they are the favourites, uh, Ricardo. The French to defend their World Cup title. They're now $2 uh, 
to win the Football World Cup. The Argentinians, second favourites at $2.50. Uh, the Croatians, um, who uh, have been very, very tough. They're $8.00. And the Moroccans, as you say, um, the surprise packets of the Football World Cup 2022. They're $11.00 uh, to win the uh, World Cup. The worst result for us at the moment, the Argentinians, who are $2.50. They have been very well backed by punters. Um, and that, a number of punters jumped on after they lost that group match to, what was it, Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Arabia? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they drifted out, I think, to around 8 $9 after that loss in uh, group play. Uh, so a number of punters jumped on then uh, on the Argentinians, and they are our worst result. Uh, followed closely by France. But, yeah, Argentina, a bad result for us. Um, but, um, yeah, they've, they've been well-backed. And if you did get on at around 8 or $9, well done to you. Um, you'll be hoping for them to get through fairly easily against the Croatians. Although, they, gee, they, they play a, a really solid brand of football, the Croatians. Mm. Very hard to break down, Ricardo. Yeah, they were 11th favourite coming into the tournament. I kind of said that I thought they were a bit of a dark horse. I mean, they were finalists last time. They were playing 36s. Um, which was uh, which was interesting, I thought. But uh, uh, the TAB CEO must have been doing the old Scrooge McDuck dive off a diving board into a into a room full of money after Brazil got knocked out, though. Surely uh, that that was a pretty good result for us, to be fair, <laughs> Ricardo. Yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately for the oh, once again, I'm just dumbfounded that Neymar wasn't one of the first two to take a penalty yeah. sh- uh, shot for then. Um, they're obviously rated the guys in front and thought that he'd be the one to put the nail in the coffin, unfortunately. He didn't get the opportunity to do that. So, yeah, very, very interesting decisions by uh, a a number of sort of football teams uh, during this Football World Cup. But, yeah, France are the favourites at the moment. $2 to win the whole thing to defend their title. Um, But Argentina have been very, very well backed by punters. I'm just having a look at a couple of NBA picks uh, this afternoon, or currently on at the moment. About five, ten minutes ago, we took a $10,000 bet on the New Orleans Pelicans, minus one and a half, at a dollar eighty-three. Uh, and their match, what are they? They're into the second, third quarter, I think, uh, as we speak. And the Pelicans, uh, one point down to the Phoenix Suns. There's also been a, a multi-place uh, about an hour ago, hour and a half ago, $7,000 multi on the Phoenix Suns to beat the Pelicans uh, into the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to beat the San Francisco 49ers. $7,000 to return just a tick under forty k. Right. Well, that's, uh, I don't know. I mean, the uh, the 49ers running game have just been absolutely barreling through the 49ers at the moment. They, they lead 7-0 at this stage. Uh, and Paulie, just finally this one from Brett. Tua to throw 300-plus yards and three TDs under the roof at Sofi at 4.33. Don't mind it if I do, Paulie Mawadi. He's even named you. So thanks for that from sure. Brett. Oh, I'm glad he got on because I know that uh, uh, Kempi got on uh, Cinerama when the bookies uh, boosted Cinerama on Saturday out to around $2, I think, and that was uh, 
uh, a fairly easy watch in the end. It's coming up 11 o'clock here on SENZ. This is Mornings with Ian Smith. Thanks to Brand, your local John Deere equipment supplier. Coming up shortly, it is The Serve with 1NZ. We're bringing you an hour of tennis chat, including Mike Venus live in studio with us and your opportunity to get in the draw to win a couple of seats at a corporate box at the ASB Classic with us as well. All that and more coming up with 1NZ next.